Welcome to Social Efficiencing, a production of Coastal Roots Radio. This is our continuing coverage of the impacts of COVID-19 on North America's coastal fisheries and fishing communities. There are being efforts to try and look on how we can maintain a healthy fishing industry. The big concern is how long can we sustain this? I think hope it's going to cause a kind of moment of reckoning. Hello, I'm your co-host, Emily D'Souza. I'm joined by... Philip Loring. And I'm Hannah Harrison. If you're new to Coastal Roots or an international collaboration of communities, scholars, activists, and others who are interested in supporting the health, resilience, and sustainability of coastal communities around the world. We focus this podcast on storytelling, and over the last few months, we've heard stories from fishermen and women across North America. Today, we're traveling a little further to chat with folks who grapple with another layer of complexity in their seafood operations. They're all located on islands. You know, we've encountered a lot of common themes in this work so far, but islands are really unique places. So not surprisingly, the stories we have for you today have their own unique island flavor. Let's start in the Hawaiian Islands. Hawaii-based longliners primarily catch fresh, high-quality tuna and billfish that's consumed at restaurants on the Hawaiian Islands or on the mainland of the USA. Aloha, everyone. My name is Eric Kingma. I'm the executive director of the Hawaii Longline Association. We represent all of the active Hawaii-based longline vessels. So it's 140 vessels as well as the United States-only daily tuna auction. The value of our fishery is about $100 million a year, which ranks Honolulu Harbor sixth in terms of uh, port value for fisheries in the nation. We have seen a dramatic loss in market value since mid-March, and we are dealing with basically 50% of losses in revenue, which right now translates to about $20 million in lost revenue over the course of the past four months. Hawaii has faced an additional layer of challenges during the COVID-19 pandemic due to the nature of their fishery. We have is, you know, a fleet of 140 vessels. The average size is about 75 feet in length. And, um, you know, the vessel operating cost. So a trip expense is about 35000 to 45000 A lot of that is, is up front before you leave the dock. Fuel, bait, ice, supplies, groceries, labor. On the labor side, you have some you know, some vessel owners that are captains and owners that are longtime participants. And it's not like um, a small scale fishery where it's um, one or two guys. There's five or six crew and a captain uh, that their chip lengths are 21 to 26 days uh, fishing anywhere from 75 to a thousand miles away. And so really, I mean, I think that uh, owner captain that has limited sort of outside uh, income, I think are the most vulnerable. Most of those guys don't have other businesses to fall back on. Another unique aspect about Hawaii's seafood industry is that Hawaii is home to the largest tuna auction in the United States. On a normal day, this is an exciting opportunity for fish buyers, but as the COVID-19 pandemic made its way to North America, the tuna auction was the first indicator of how bad things were going to get for Hawaii's fisheries. The auction that is here in Honolulu has been running since 1952. So it is a, an institution uh, unto itself. And it, uh, the system is basically modeled after the, you know, the famous Tsukiji Japanese um, auction in Tokyo. 
Um, but basically it's the fish are laid out on the floor um, and presented to dozens of buyers um, that represent either large or small wholesale seafood distribution companies. And each fish is auctioned off. So it's one by one. And there's other auctions in the world too. There's one in Sydney, for example. Um, but it is a an institution here in Hawaii and it, it is a it's it's built businesses. It's a small business incubator. You know, um, anyone could go in and buy a fish and really develop a, a business around it. So it is it is quite the the experience to go in there and um, you know compete for for that fish. You know, the the auction reflects the demand out there in the marketplace. So when the pandemic hit and, and restaurants began to close nationally and locally here in Hawaii, we saw a an 80% reduction in value overnight. So I remember it fondly as one Saturday morning, it's March 14th. Um, I wasn't at the auction. The auction manager called me and said, Eric, something's going on here. The market's completely crashed. And we, I mean, we knew COVID was was being discussed. It really wasn't, you know, at necessarily at the forefront of of the market conversation at that period. But it was it was basically yeah an overnight drop, eighty percent you know lost value and that sustained itself for the next three weeks. It was it was sort of a double whammy for us too because typically March and and April May are, are high catch rate times of the year for us. So immediately we had a lot of fish in the harbor and you know rock bottom prices and some vessels were seeing the price at the auction and freaking out and we saw a bit of sort of frantic uh, selling and buying where consumers hawaii local people were coming down and trying to get as cheap as fish as possible long lines in the harbor there was some sort of direct-to-car sales uh, which are continuing the timing of the pandemic and its impacts on seafood markets coincided with Hawaii's high season for tuna. As such, Hawaii Longline Association imposed voluntary trip limits to try to match the supply with the demand. However, given the high cost of participating in the fishery, many fishermen have been forced to tie up their boats until they have confidence that the market for their fish will actually be there when they return from one of these extended trips. You know, what we saw in early March is that 100 vessels basically tied up for three weeks. You know, things sort of stabilized a bit uh, when we, we imposed a landing limit of about 15,000 pounds per vessel. Some of these vessels can do 30,000 pounds on a three-week trip. So we limited the volume to match the demand. And also at the auction, we restricted the amount of volume that could be sold. So we essentially just reduced supply to, to meet weak demand or a very sort of eroded market so we're not we're not out of the woods we we're losing a lot of revenue on an industry-wide basis if market conditions persist like they have been for the last four months i'm anticipating a loss of around 50 million dollars so five zero 50 million dollars in revenue to our fleet and that's just on the vessel side alone so how long a vessel owner can sustain loss in revenue especially if maybe there are other businesses that they have are also leveraged. You know, right now we haven't seen any vessel owners basically offer their vessel for sale. You know, there's been sort of a steady, steady stream of vessels operating. They're just at 
essentially losses or break even or just minor profit. Um, there has been about uh, 10 boats that have stayed in port though since you know early March. A vessel to stay in port also costs about 10,000 bucks a month just to be tied up. The big concern is how long can we sustain this without vessels basically just tying up for good. Now, Hawaii is also a major tourist destination, and the loss of visitors to the island has been felt both directly and indirectly throughout the local seafood industry. Tourism here locally, the fish that is in addition to ahi, so the manchong ono, that's, that's center plate in hotel restaurants here. Um, cooked whole fish, center plate, um, going for $35 a plate, you know, at a, at a nice restaurant. So the elimination of tourists coming and, and spending those dollars at hotels, at restaurants, you know, even though it's about 30 to 40% of the value, that is essentially the profitability of a lot of vessels is you get a good price on ahi, but the other species is in the tank and your vessel either loses money or, or breaks even. Now, there was one uplifting note from our conversation with Eric, and that was about the importance of local seafood to food security on the Hawaiian Islands. Specifically, some of the steps being taken by local decision makers to ensure that people on the islands don't go hungry. Fishing and seafood production, at least in Hawaii, is critical to our food security. So Hawaii residents consume twice, three times the national seafood consumption per capita. The one benefit out of, of COVID is the wake-up call to, to Hawaii and other places about how we get our food, where it comes from. From 90% of our food, for example, comes from outside sources. And you know, fisheries and sustainable fisheries are critically important to, to Hawaii and other places that are certainly dependent on a lot of food from outside sources. So you know, how, how people get their food too is, is all changing. There's been a, a local wholesale seafood distribution company that has essentially done fish to car and uh, the demand is there. Hawaii people love seafood, whether it's ahi, poke, and you saw that in the demand. I mean, there's a line of cars, you know, a mile long outside of this business. You know, it's a special place. We are an ocean community. The reliance on the ocean for food, for our economy, it's tourism related. I mean, it's all, it's all connected here in Hawaii. Next, let's visit the opposite side of the world. We spoke with Felicity Burroughs from the Caribbean Division of the Nature Conservancy. Felicity shared with us some of the impacts of COVID-19 that are being felt in the Bahamas and other Caribbean islands. Well, uh, and I'm, I'm quite sure it's, it's seen throughout the Caribbean, uh, not just even limited to the Bahamas where I'm actually based. Uh, there have been a couple of things. Of course, you know, many of the Caribbean countries, we rely on tourism and a, mo- a lot of the seafood that is provided goes to quite a bit of those ho- hoteliers. And with the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, we've had to put in improved safety measures across the Caribbean and different governments have uh, placed various types of measures. Many of them have in- um, implemented curfews. Uh, which of course doesn't allow the freedom consistently on a daily basis. We've, they've also closed borders. I mean, the Bahamas is one of those. We've closed borders now for the second time, uh, including the U.S., which is one of the uh, main uh, buyers, I would say, for some of our, for our, our seafood products. So 
we tend to sell most up to 60% of our seafood products into the US. You know, we've seen changes in the frequency in the air and sea transportation. So when you're talking about moving seafood um, freight itself, whether it's with inter-islands within a particular Caribbean country or even for export, you know, with having the borders closed and so forth, that limits that uh, level of transportation, which of course impacts uh, those particular exporters and even the retailers, because then you're now looking at larger volumes of seafood product that would have been harvested. And as a result, because they're already used to the process of having specific storage to hold a certain uh, uh, amount of volume of seafood, then now they're ending up with <laughs> a higher volume within their own uh, facilities that, they, that they're not able to really easily manage. To respond to the pandemic and the loss of export markets in restaurants, some fishermen in the Bahamas and other Caribbean islands have moved from selling seafood at local markets to doing home deliveries directly to consumers or other retailers or restaurants. We've gotten more into the uh, delivery of seafood products to uh, homes and other local shops that may require seafood. So some of the regular food stores that would typically uh, sell seafood, they will now do these delivery services. And also with the, the restaurants as well. Um, so that has been one of the ways. And then of course, looking at how they can, how can they can have value added on some of these products and then even micro loans and other financing arrangement. Um, this I know is being done in Grenada, for example, um, through various projects where it's supported by uh, FAO, which is the Food and Agriculture Organization, or even the Caribbean Regional Fisheries uh, Mechanism, which is another management body, but working with those national governments to see how best that they can have more private and public sector uh, partnership to support this type of activity. And then, you know, in other cases, there may be, because of the economic downturn to some of these uh, fishing communities, they, some countries may be looking at um, uh, implemented a tax breaks, um, whether there's on equipment or any of the old loans to date now have been things that they have been really exploring at this point. In episode 11, we talked a lot about the compounding impacts of COVID-19, or what happens when natural and man-made disasters strike areas already reeling from the impacts of the pandemic. That's right. Felicity also talked about how Hurricane Dorian devastated Caribbean fisheries last year, as well as the new concerns among the industry as they approach another hurricane season. Hurricane Dorian last year that just really plummeted the Bahamas. And of course, that automatically impacted our fishing industry because those islands that were hit were two main fishing islands as well. And so we've seen that shift. We've seen how many of those fishes had suffered just through the hurricane aspect of it. And of course, I am speaking from Hurricane Dorian last year, but there are other um, Caribbean countries who are impacted by hurricanes on an annual basis. And this has an impact. This is now going to be compounded with the fact that COVID is around for quite some time. You don't know if it's going to have a second, third wave. Again, with a, with a hurricane like Dorian, you know, places like Abaco and Grand Bahama were still recuperating, particularly Abaco, um, since they were the ones that were impacted significantly. And then, of course, now coming again into hurricane season with COVID, still trying to recover. I mean, just recently, um, while I was sitting here talking to, to you, 
the government just decided that they're going to close the other island um, completely on lockdown, um, which was Grand Bahama, which was also one of those islands that were impacted significantly by Hurricane Dorian because there's been a significant boost in the number of COVID uh, cases just over the last two days. And so all of the other islands in the Bahamas, and I'm sure now with, within the Caribbean, who rely on fisheries and know that June 1st was the start of the hurricane season. Like, you know, everybody's pretty much will be on pins and needles on how do we do with the impacts of climate change on the fisheries industry, as well as now dealing with COVID and still trying to find a way for um, persons to operate. Now, despite these cumulative and compounding effects, Felicity did note that the pandemic has created an opportunity for some entrepreneurs to get involved in the solution. I do think it, there's going to be some changes. Um, some may be for the better. It may really help us to now not only strengthen, but also be more innovative in the way we are managing our fisheries. But I do think that there will be some impact on some of the fisher folk themselves, particularly those that are not involved as high up in the processing and the export of products themselves. And then, um, of course, there are going to be persons who may be who may lose jobs as well, just who only work in processing plants, for example. But at least the good thing is that there are being efforts to try and look at how we can maintain a healthy fishing industry. When we look at um, just being able to have a more structured uh, operation of delivery service and so forth, which was something we never did before uh, with the seafood, it now opens up an opportunity for others to become more involved with uh, making money through these delivery services. So I think when, which will be quite some time, uh, things really change. I think we will still have the combination of the vendors being able to open up and operate, but those delivery services will also be made available. I think there are still going to be some uh, customers that are not as comfortable coming out to very crowded spaces. And so in order to try and maintain some level, some some that part of the market, they will have to have a combination of both. So now we visited the Pacific and the Caribbean. So let's make one more stop. This time to the North Atlantic, where we spoke with Janice and Anthony Cobb of Fogo Island Fish in Newfoundland. We are a husband and wife team and we run Fogo Island Fish which is a social business dedicated to preserving Canadian jobs in the fisheries and bringing high quality Canadian fish and seafood to Canadian tables. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, Fogo Island Fish was buying directly from fishermen in order to supply restaurants. With more of their restaurant clients remaining closed over the last few months, they've had to pivot and find new ways to move their seafood. Obviously when you know, it was announced that you know, restaurants would have to close in March 12th, um, you know, our business you know, went to zero. Um, so, you know, as, as restaurants closed, that's the only vertical, you know, the only industry that we sell to, the only vertical we sell into. Uh, obviously, as restaurants closed, our, our sales went to zero. And, and, you know, I mean, obviously, it's devastating, um, as it is, you know, for the restaurants and, and, you know, and hotels, of course, all of the food service industry, you know, um, businesses that closed. Um, very, very difficult time to, you know, to work through when you know you've got a you know you've got locations you know people have you know rents to pay and and you know people on salary people on hourly uh, people as well and and you know for to try and maintain 
you know, our business during shutdown was you know, incredibly difficult. There was what a couple of weeks, and then they said uh, you could do takeout, right? So restaurants could do takeout. I think that was probably a month in, and uh, we found very little of our customers taking up doing the takeout at all. In fact, I think we had one order in that entire month. But what did happen in that time that's a little bit different for us? So we've been a direct, like a wholesale side of the business. We have some partners uh, in both in Ottawa and uh, up here in Collingwood where we are and all over in uh, Cambridge and in Toronto. And these partners have been selling our products on our behalf to their customers. But when this happened, they uh, started to pivot to selling direct to the homeowner. So we wanted to participate in that. And we started to help through Instagram and other ways to drive our friends and family and, and others to to start to buy direct and get good quality food to people. Because as you know, at that time, people were having trouble sourcing food even or thinking about where they were going to get it or they didn't want to go to grocery stores or they couldn't go. Now, restaurants have reopened, but as Janice noted, they've had to adapt as things aren't quite like they used to be. When they did start to reopen on patios, as, as I said earlier, they, they might have been using up other product, but they also came out with much more reduced menus. So usually it was, you know, four to six items uh, rather than their perhaps larger menus that they would have done in the past. And they also started to purchase from us more of the crab and shrimp because our, those products are already cooked. So all you have to do is thaw them. So when they're, because their challenge is obviously bringing in a full staff when they don't even have a full, you know, full set of, of tables and things like that. So I think they were looking for products that would be easy, wouldn't have to do too much transformation to them to get them on the menu and get them out to the public. So we noticed more seafood, more crab and shrimp being sold initially than our cod. Despite the challenges that COVID-19 has posed to island fisheries and the broader seafood industry, Anthony remains hopeful and echoed a similar sentiment that we've heard from others we've spoken to over the past few months, that this pandemic is catalyzing a major transformation in our food systems. And I think, you know, one of the things about COVID uh, and the experience that people are, are having with, you know, sourcing their food and, and, and being concerned about the source of their food and being concerned about food security. I think, local. you know, I think that, that, that moment is now, I think, you know, for every Canadian, about 75% of all seafood eaten in Canada is imported. And about 75% of all seafood caught in Canada is exported. And we can't quite square that up. To, to, to look at you know, what's available, uh, where does it come from? Is it nutritionally dense? Uh, I think, you know, COVID's kind of one of the, you know, maybe putting a light now on the kind of food that's available in your national retailers' shelves and freezers. Uh, I think it's a, COVID's going to cause a kind of moment of reckoning. And I sure hope, you know, we can convince them that wild-caught Canadian seafood that's nutritionally dense and good for you deserves to be in the freezer. Thanks for joining us. Social Fish Dancing is a production of Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. 
We will be bringing you the voices and stories of small-scale fishermen and women from around North America for the foreseeable future of the COVID-19 pandemic. These interviews and episodes are being recorded week to week, and we aim to bring you a new one every other Tuesday. To connect with the people you've heard on this podcast, including fishermen, visit us at the Coastal Roots website at www.coastalroots.org. If you'd like to share your story with us, and we hope that you will, send an email to stories at coastalroots.org. Coastal Roots Radio is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Arrow Food Institute at the University of Guelph, and now the Miapar Network. Welcome to the team. We also receive support from the American Anthropological Association and the Local Catch Network. Today, we heard from Eric Kingma, Felicity Burroughs, and Anthony and Janice Cobb. You're listening to Reggae Life by Goimamba, available on the Free Music Archive. See you next time.